Welcome to Parallel, a tech podcast with accessibility sprinkles. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host. This is episode 63. Today we're talking about accessibility of a variety of things. And, and honestly, I'm not 100% sure where we'll go. I know we're going to go beyond digital accessibility, though, which is a topic we, we talk about a lot because I have a guest who has done so many different kinds of accessibility projects that, that I'm really looking forward to picking her brain. Her name is Christine Hemphill. She is the co-founder and managing director of Open Inclusion, a London-based company that helps companies improve their brand experiences through a deeper understanding of the needs of disabled and older consumers and employees. She's also a member of the team behind XR Access, a group that has come together to expand accessibility in extended reality. Christine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Shelley. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to to have you here because, as I as I mentioned at the top, a lot of people I talk to are focused specifically on digital accessibility, which is really important, and we all care about it. But you do a lot more than that. Can you talk about what Open Inclusion does and sort of the breadth of the projects that you tackle? Yes, I'd be delighted to. I mean, essentially, we think of inclusive design and specifically disability and age inclusive design as being about equivalent experience or or delightful experience, irrespective of where that experience is. So when a brand is engaging with a customer or more point, the customer engages with a brand, that can happen and it does increasingly happen across multiple different channels. It can be digital, it can start on digital, then go to physical. Someone might go in store, go and see a physical product. It might have a customer service layer to it, and then there's brand and communication. So that kind of end-to-end experience has fewer boundaries these days, and we look right across the experience. So we have to look across those boundaries as well. How did you personally get involved in accessibility work? Yeah, really great question. Um, Like many people, I fell into it by accident. I was actually a designer in Innovator for many years prior to becoming a specifically inclusive uh, designer in Innovator. And actually, I think it's my own failure that really triggered me into wanting to bring the process of engagement with more diverse needs and more diverse individuals into that process because Having designed for many years without that fuel of insight, um, I really saw how I didn't know any better at the time and probably failed people and went through a bit of an experience through some personal lived experience in my family of disability, seeing that actually deciding to differentiate a digital agency on the basis of accessible design. And then I fell in love with the process in the course of that rather than the product. And it's the process really at Open that we get most involved in. So that thinking about how do you learn what experience is and how diverse that experience is so that designers and innovators like I was have that insight to do better. It's essentially a lot of latent energy out there. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And and so many people are motivated by personal experience and family experience. And, and I guess I wonder what the next layer of is, is of motivating others who may not have that lived experience either to help you to work with you or to become customers or to basically to care about accessibility. How do you sort of move beyond people who see it in their personal lives to, to making it a broader conversation? 
I think that's a really powerful question and two sides to that is there's the side of people that understand exclusion and get frustrated and, you know, that that is enough grit in the shoe to really make them want to do something different. And to many people that's through some lived experience personally or, or by watching that experience through people very close to them. But I think the other side of this is there's just so much upside by looking at things through an inclusive lens. And once you start using the kind of prism of different experiences and different perspectives, you see how powerful this is. And it's funny, you see people go through this transition for so many different reasons, but once you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And there is so much value in inclusive design that is so powerful and so informative of just better product and better outcomes. To me, this is almost a no-brainer. It's just getting people over that hurdle of learning in the first place and, and seeing outside of what are they, whatever their definition of normal is, which is is fairly flawed. You know, I, I like to kind of pe – people have got quite into human-centred design and I think that's really healthy and people are recognising you have to ask – you know, people outside of the design team, how they may engage with an experience and what that means to them and see how they, you know, what works and doesn't work for them. And inclusive design is just an extension of that where you really ask who are the humans at the centre of that design and are we engaging broadly enough to understand that experience diversely enough to really reflect the, the true and potential consumer base here. Are there some either best practices or just good strategies to employ? And I, I realize that's probably a super broad question. So if you'd want to take it down to an example, that's great. But I, I would just love to know, like, what are what are some ways you can actually engage people on on the team, inside or outside the design team, to uh, to, to find out what the needs are and then create products or tools that meet them? I think there's a, a couple of really um, powerful things that people can can take on. The first one is obviously insight. So actually engaging with people who engage with your product, service, or environment differently. And the more different the people are, the more insights you get, and particularly when they're different from each other. So I often talk about if you've only got six people that can come and give you some insight on your product or service or environment – if those six people are kind of in the centre of the normal curve on all characteristics, you're not going to learn all that much that's different from each other because their experience won't be that differentiated from each other and that you probably won't really stress test that environment or that, that product particularly well. If alternatively you go exactly to the opposite and you get six people that are incredibly diverse and incredibly different from each other, so diverse on different characteristics to each other, then you start to see very significant difference between the different um, experiences they have. You stress test your product far more thoroughly. You'll find those breakpoints much more easily where you're already disappointing customers and you, you can go and see them much more easily. Um, and yet you're still covering off the whole centre of the normal curve because people are far more than their disability. They have all their other characteristics that carry them across the centre as well. So you actually don't miss out on anything. You just get a whole lot more for that insight. That must be interesting for the person or the people that are running this, the study too because the way all those people with different 
needs and and issues to use a fraught word, I suppose, all the ways those people interact are going to feed off each other very differently if they're different from one another, if, if that makes any sense. And and it seems like so that gives you a lot more data, but it, and it also, you know, maybe maybe it makes for less bias. Does that make sense? It does. And actually, it can cause more friction. And that friction can be very healthy if the research has been designed to use that in a positive way because you'll see contradiction between people's preferences and requirements. That's actually very healthy for a design team to see that because they actually find those points of critical design decisions and the point at which universal design might break and you need to have more adaptive or optional design um, gets highlighted much more quickly. Equally, another really important point on that, Shelley, is that it means that the researchers need to consider the research that is going to be really suited to each individual's needs. So there's some more preparation and more consideration required than a standard kind of user research or um, standard, whether it's qual or quant or whatever format you're using, um, of considering the individual's needs and each individual being engaged and how are you making sure that you know, there's clear and easy lines of communication both directions from you to them and from them back to you in the way that they prefer and need, that it's easy and understandable as to what the activity is and that you're actually not burning their energy just getting there or just getting away, but being able to protect that energy for in the room or in the session, um, whether it's online or in, in person. This episode of Parallel is brought to you by privacy.com. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information, so you never have to worry about giving it out to people you don't know online. I recently had this situation where I had to authorize a regular ACH bank withdrawal, and I did it by filling out a secure form online. But I also know that that form can be printed, that once it leaves my hands, I don't have control of who has my banking numbers. And privacy makes it possible to just send a virtual number along and uh, still conduct the automatic withdrawal that I needed to do, but also protect my actual bank account information from access by somebody who I don't necessarily uh, know or trust. Take back control of your payments. Decide who can charge your card, how much, and how often. And you can close cards at any time. Plus, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. And privacy is partnered with the good folks at 1Password. You can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. All virtual cards created in 1Password will have the same security benefits of your other privacy cards. And you can set spend limit, create single-use or merchant-locked cards whenever you want. Head to privacy.com slash parallel and sign up for an account. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. Go to privacy.com slash parallel and sign up now. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and Relay FM. That's really interesting, and and I would think that it would take somebody some time to sort of learn how to do those. That that's a skill. That's not just some researcher asking a set of rote questions and writing down answer. That that re- answers that requires somebody to actually be seriously thoughtful and to have some some experience doing this work to do it well. I would think. 
that's the delight of inclusive research. I'm sitting here smiling wildly because that's why we love it. That's why it's fun because <laughs> you, you can't do it without turning up and thinking. You know, you've actually got to – and not just thinking once and say, oh, I've got that. That, that works. It, it worked for that group in that format for that piece of research at that time. So it's a lot more fun than standard research because you're constantly learning and thinking and engaging and meeting new people that have different mixes of characteristics. That means their experience will be different and you need to you know, show up slightly differently to support that. Can you talk about some products that, that you and your company have been involved in? Obviously, there's uh, uh, you know product secrecy and things that you might be working on now, but how about, how about some examples of some past work, just so people can get a sense of the kind of products we're talking about? Yeah, maybe I'll just pick up on a couple. Um, first one, you mentioned that we're involved in XR Access. I love XR because it is a natural hybrid of a physical digital product. So there's a digital experience within the product. There's a physical experience in whichever format people are engaging with it, but particularly if it's got a headset, let alone if it's got, you know, a full setup with six degrees of freedom and, and you know, a fu fully controlled area. So there's both a physical engagement and enablement and a digital engagement and enablement. So two places that essentially, if people's needs aren't considered, they might be excluded from that experience. So equally, it allows accessibility to experiences that otherwise might not be available to someone with a disability. So just as an example of this, um, a very good friend of mine and one of my colleagues is a wheelchair user and has quite limited dexterity and and uh, has a, a muscular condition, so you know, limited uh, muscularity. And he loves skydiving. He skydives using XR. You know, he has a VR um, headset that he goes skydiving with. That's not an experience he could have in real life, but it is an experience that the you know the XR world has been able to you know provide him. So there's such enablement if we design right. So you know, to me, new areas of technology are some of the most exciting areas we work. Because if we ignore them at this really critical point and juncture in their maturity, a whole new area of exclusion might pop up. And if you think about XR for a moment, it's being used increasingly in the workplace, in education, in health, and of course, in entertainment and gaming and so on. But these are critical parts of people's lives. And if we exclude there, we're excluding people from, you know, critical services and capability enablers. Um, so it's really important from a let's not exclude. But equally, if we get involved now, we can actually look at to these technologies and say, we have a whole basket of unmet needs that we're aware of for, for people working in the disability space because there's a lot of unmet needs out there with today's services and products. And Yet, if we look to these new technologies, we can find new ways of solving those old problems much more fluidly. You know, um, if we look at um, uh, autonomous vehicles, this is an exact, you know, another really interesting example that people who are, you know, have significant sight loss or who have learning difficulties might not be able to drive a car today. But if we design the vehicles of the future in a way that support their needs, they may well be able to independently move around you know, with private vehicles, which removes a whole area of exclusion today. But who's thinking about autonomous vehicles in terms of 
how the screens and interactions are being designed, how the technology is being developed so that it's accessible to people with sight loss or people who learn differently. And that to me is that they're such exciting spaces because it's both loss to be avoided and gain to be gained. Well, and, and, but that's the, the question, though. Who, who is thinking about it and what's the impetus for the companies that are building these experiences to provide that layer of accessibility either to prevent exclusion or to create a whole new level of, of inclusion? Well, just as an example, two specific you know, clients. One is a banking, you know, a large retail bank in the UK um, that we've worked with on Voice UI. And their innovation team had asked us to provide some inclusive research on how voice-based banking might work using voice assistants like a Google Home or the voice assistant on your mobile phone. And they specifically went to people with disability to learn first because they realised that that, you know, edge case learning is where they might learn furthest and fastest, both solving some of the needs of current mobile banking or or digital banking um, capabilities that they've got, but also because people who use voice UI today, the most experienced people are those with sight loss. And actually some of the the greatest use cases are people with mobility or dexterity needs, sight loss, or or that find banking complex for whatever reason in digital banking today. So, you know, to them, this was an enabler of their innovation project that just accelerated it, even though it's a mainstream product. So it will be for, for everyone in the retail bank will have access to this product. But they've just accelerated that learning very significantly by starting at the edges. So that's one case. Um, another very different one is we've been working with the COVID test and trace um, team for the test and trace app in the UK. Highly innovative because we didn't plan on being in a pandemic and nor did anyone, I think, <laughs> see our way through it. So things changed very, very rapidly. And the importance of iteration in a country in the UK where 70% of deaths have been people with disabilities is literally critical. So why is this important? Because people are dying. Um, We absolutely need to make sure that people are testing this app and understanding it and able to engage with it and turning it on and, and protecting themselves with the best knowledge possible right from the beginning. Um, so that's been a really interesting project of innovation by requirement as opposed to by choice. I guess the other side of that innovation by requirement, though, is that so often it seems like accessibility or mitigation for disabilities is about compliance, whether it's the Americans with Disabilities Act here in the United States or other rules around the world. And I, I sometimes sense that there's resistance when companies are forced to do something as opposed to when they think well, this is innovative. It's like the bank example you cited where it's going to benefit other parts of the organization or other customers. But but do you find that that's a barrier where people are, are feeling you know compelled to do something and that doesn't exactly uh, cause creativity to be at its highest? Yes. Um, Many clients come to us with a, please make sure that we get our nose just above this line, whether it's a built environment code or a WCAG 2.1, 2.2, AA, whatever their requirements are. That's often where they start, but it's really interesting. If they engage with us, they get customer insight as opposed to just an audit, which, you know, far more tick box, cross box, 
you got past this one, you need to do some work on this one. When you actually see customers engaging with your product in journey-based perspectives, it's very hard not to wish to provide better experience. Customer experience, you know, the CX market, um, insight market is, I've forgotten the amount, but it's billions of dollars worldwide. And yet very few people are receiving that customer experience information. We've delighted customers, we've disappointed customers in, you know, what's our net promoter score, how many people are detractors, how many people are promoters, um, et cetera, et cetera. They're paying an absolute fortune to get this data, to look at it and to try and move it. But very, very few organisations are looking at the characteristics of the individuals that are the why behind the experience. And interestingly, more diverse characteristics and particularly disability characteristics are specifically, it makes it much easier to both delight a customer by fulfilling their needs because not everyone does and then they'll be much more loyal and there's, you know, being above that line of you know, just a neutral customer but into delight is easier with people that are more often left behind and therefore meeting their needs and consistently meeting their needs is delightful. Equally, if you've disappointed someone, the cost of that disappointment may be much greater. That's where the greatest value of organisations lie. It's above and below that line of neutral. So when organisations start to see that and understand that, and they do that by engaging with their customers, that's when they get quite excited and they go, oh, there's a lot of value here. And actually, there's all the innovation value that the whole mainstream in the middle can benefit from as well. And do you feel like they do that of their own volition, or is that something that your 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 organization specializes in nudging them to take that sort of uh, more engaged attitude? It's a maturity. Um, they get there in their own time. No, <laughs> no one can be told yeah. to kind of see something differently. Right. But it's really hard to see customers struggle with your product, doing the core journey that you've set out to provide to them, and not disappoint yourself, even if technically. It's tick the built environment code or it's tick the requirements. And equally, it's hard not to get excited by the opportunity that Great Innovation Insight provides. So when people start to get this fuel of insight, there's a natural, yeah, we obviously work to, to nudge them and to see that and to help them see that more quickly and fluidly and easily. But there is just a natural maturity there that makes it um, more, you know, People people need to go through in their own way and some, some organisations turn up already ready and some, despite the fact that they've had it for quite a while, you know, still seem to be. So just make sure we get over that line, please. Let's talk about XR Access Ooh. a little bit more. I had uh, Regine Gilbert, who's also involved in XR Access on the show a couple of episodes ago, and I know she focuses on uh, design and we, we talked a lot about uh, experiences from an extended reality point of view for people with different disabilities. But I, I wonder uh, where you come at your involvement in XR Access uh, from and, and what your particular interests are. Well, as I mentioned before, I love emerging technology because I see it, this, there, it's a, a, such a critical point and an extended reality really is at, at this point where you just feel it's been talked about and thought about and been on the edge of breakthrough for decades, actually, um, but particularly over this last decade. But I think this period of digital acceleration through COVID 
has seen extended reality really pick him up to the next level of momentum that it won't slow down from. You know, it feels like it's stepping onto that exponential curve of increased um, speed right at the moment. That means now is the time that accessibility needs to be considered because, as I was mentioning before, health services are being offered through, you know, extended reality. Um, education, workplace, learning and training is increasingly using extended reality. If we exclude people from these, people are being excluded from health services, from education, from their workplace. I mean, these are critical fails. So it's really important to get this perspective built into it now. Yeah, that's why I'm certainly committed to it on that. Let, let's save ourselves from a new space of exclusion and then from that positive side, as I was mentioning before, with this friend of mine who now skydives, thanks to XR, um, there is such opportunity and potential if we put our creative mindsets over that, which you know I love to do and say, so rather than just saving this from failure, which is important and absolutely must be done, how do we use this for for you know re-enablement in, in spaces that today without that technology we can't so easily do how do we use this as a leapfrog technology unlike some of the other people in XR just to be clear as to what I am and what I'm not I am not the techie that knows how to solve the problem so I have to leverage the wonderful people in that community you know people like Thomas Logan and Regine and there's brilliant people across that community that understand the how-to my role in there is really what to. So to really understand what is it the user wants, what do they need, how and where can things break today, and therefore where are the spaces that need the attention of these brilliant minds to come in and find better and more inclusive ways of engaging. Keeping in mind that you're you're not the techie, as, as you've just said, are there any particular areas of XR either just, you know, functionally or or any 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 things things that are going on in this technology right now they're just really exciting to you or that you think are going to foster more inclusion a lot um i think binaural audio is incredibly exciting particularly for people with sight loss but equally for people who might be dyspraxic who find you know spatial information more difficult Knowing where in space sound comes from and being able to provide that, whether it's for providing really brilliant soundtracks that come in through space and, and make it a much more immersive experience, or whether it allows you to reduce the amount of audio description required because the spatial information can just come through the soundtrack itself as opposed to needing to be described and the person's coming in from the back left corner. So spatial sound I think is incredibly exciting at the moment I actually think that that's almost more exciting than the spatial information but then things like AR and being able to use that um, in a retail environment for example we're seeing so many people now use AR to especially in a COVID environment um, see how a sofa might look in their home so they don't need to go down to the shop and look at it and try and imagine it and what have you, but be able to place it, be able to look at it in 3D. Um, the ability to help people use information in essentially zeros and ones, you know, in code, to be able to imagine different things in different ways is incredibly helpful to many people, but is specifically helpful to people where there might be a lot of friction in doing it differently. So if there's a lot of friction in getting 
on public transport and getting down to that shop and looking at it in real life and then how am I, you know, getting it home and putting it in place, um, it can make that, it can take away friction that exists today. There's so many different ways. Those, and those are great points. And I, I sometimes when I talk about accessibility, differentiate between a kind of accessibility that fixes something that is broken for a person with a disability versus giving somebody, giving someone the ability to do something that they just otherwise would not be able to do. And, and those XR examples seem like a perfect uh, illustration of, of the latter, where you're actually making stuff possible that wasn't before. And I, I think a concern that a lot of people with disabilities have about XR is because there's that abstraction layer that people are naturally going to be left out unless there's somebody out there going, hey, not only do we need to make this accessible for the sake of making accessible, but we're actually able to provide you know, new applications and benefits to people that otherwise wouldn't exist out there. Absolutely. And I actually, uh, first, you know, I often think of your first responsibility is to do no harm. It's like a doctor, you know, or anyone who's done any first aid training. First, most important thing, don't make it worse. Second, and, that, and that's critical. Let's not underestimate that. And that to me is little a accessibility. Absolutely critically important and it must be done. But secondly, now we can create something completely delightful. And that's the exciting bit. So don't underestimate the importance of the first. However, if we take that as the kind of safety net that just needs to be put in place, people don't go to the circus to see the safety net. They go to the circus to see the act. And actually, that's when we can get out of our mentality of what do I just need to do in order to comply with the ADA or to make sure that I meet my requirements you know, under the Equality Act or you know, various government requirements in different countries. This is where we say we're an organisation trying to create value for people, even if it's a government creating value to our citizens or a commercial organisation. How do we create that act that is as delightful as possible to as many people as consistently as we can? And there is so much freedom in these emerging technologies to do that. Um, you know, that's where I get you – know, and that's where you can't do that without insight from the communities. So that's where it's not sufficient to just use standards because the standards can't tell you where delight is. They'll just tell you where failure is. Well, that's that's – a great insight. And I absolutely agree with that. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Uh, and, and Christine Hemphill, thank you also for being on the show. Let me give you a chance to plug anything that you're, you're working on right now and your, your, your company, your work. Uh, what, what, what's going on that, that people should know about? Well, um, firstly, if anyone's interested in joining our community, the heart of our business is our community. You can't do um, any of the work we do without being able to engage with a very diverse community of people that are happy to share their experience. If anyone's interested in sharing their experience, we have a community that is now open in the US or in the UK or elsewhere in the world, um, and it's at simplyopen.io. Please come and join us. If you've got any you know, access needs or any specific requirements, that means that you're out on those edges of experience where you feel that people fail you regularly with design, we'd love to hear from you. Um, all our research is paid research. Um, we always, we're, we're creating value. We ensure that that value is shared back. Um, and other than that, uh, follow us at Open Inclusion. It's just www.openinclusion.com um, or on Twitter, we're hashtag open for access. 
Excellent. You can follow this show at relay.fm slash parallel. You can subscribe. You can join the network. You can also follow us at Parallel Pods over on Twitter or follow me personally at Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y. Always happy to have your guest suggestions and your feedback. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Bye now.